welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And we usually open the show with me introducing some loosely gambling-related banter topic. But instead, this week, let's open the show with a word from 15-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner Phil Hellmuth. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> John, can you uh, confirm for the listeners that we did not pay Phil for that soundbite? Uh-oh. Um, yes, Eric, it's true that Phil was having such a good time that he playfully picked up on our title theme. But uh, it's also true that anyone who listened to the interview was drawn to how successful a businessman Phil is. So, And he doesn't work for free. So I think the first piece of his cut, of this cut comes out of your hide, Eric. Um, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be happy to uh, settle with Phil, as they say. Um, first thing that struck me from that discussion, actually, too, was that, you know, Maybe Jeopardy James is not as much of a lock as the smartest guests of our 100 shows as I thought he was. Um, the second is that our, our, our poker guests, uh, quite a few of them, I think they're, a lot of them are near the top of that list. Um, and the third is that, wow, we've had a lot of smart guests. I hadn't realized it until I thought about it. Um, apparently, uh, gambling and especially the uh, expanding world of legal regulated U.S. gambling is drawing some of our country's finest minds. Yeah, I'm 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 not going to go quite so far as to uh, <laughs> say that that Phil Helmuth is smarter than than Jeopardy James. I guess different kinds of of uh, levels of yes. high intelligence there. Um, uh, definitely, Phil Helmuth is uh, smarter when it comes to self marketing. He has he has ma- mastered that craft and apparently uh, mastered the act of portraying himself as uh, extremely successful and an extreme genius, which he is to some degree. But he might uh, over he might lay it on a little thick here and there, but. Uh, uh, that, that was actually made for back to back weeks of our guests departing us by stating the name of the podcast. As uh, you may recall, Brian Campbell said goodbye with a gamble on the, the week before. Uh, but 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 Phil's Phil's was better. Um, and um, I'm annoyed with myself for giggling over the end of it. I, I ruined I ruined the clip a little. If I had a time machine. The first place I'd go is back one week and tell myself not to make any noise. As Phil said, gamble on. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Uh, I think if you ask Phil again for a, a reasonable price, he'll be happy to uh, <laughs> <have a> retake. <laughs> yes, that reasonable price. I, I haven't received his invoice yet for uh, for last week. but uh... <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 101 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 100 episodes, including last week's epic interview with the great Phil Helmuth, featuring not only that great plug for Gamble On, but also a half dozen celebrity name drops and about 75 or so unhumble, humble brags, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a glowing review. Yeah, and Eric, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by ESPN and Roto Grinders baseball analyst Derek Cardi. Going to help us get ready for the Major League Baseball season that starts. I, I cannot believe I'm saying this um, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll ask Derek about accounting for a 60 game season, why bullpens could matter more than ever this year, and, and how predicting COVID opt outs can give you an edge betting win totals. So, first, it's been another semi busy news week, I'd say, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Before we get into our first story, a couple of quick mentions of stories we won't be covering. Uh, We won't be covering FanDuel and DraftKings both getting temporary sports betting permits in Illinois, because we've already covered that on recent episodes when they were getting close to securing those permits. 
And we won't be covering the official launch of online casino gaming in West Virginia, which began with DraftKings Casino going live late last week, because there's nothing to say except online casino gaming is live in West Virginia. Uh, But here's (laughs) what we will be covering with our first story this week. Pennsylvania June Revenue. Gary Rothstein provided an interesting twist on these numbers for PennBets.com, focusing not on the fact that revenue is way down year over year, which of course it is, but rather on his calculation that the casinos that were open in June earned more per day than they did the previous June, suggesting that Pennsylvania gamblers were hungry for action after the COVID shutdowns. The total land-based casino revenue for the month was $74.1 million, way down from June 2019's $267.7 million, but up 5.2% per casino per day open. Meanwhile, online casino revenue dropped a bit with brick-and-mortar casinos opening back up, falling from a May 2020 high of $55.8 million to $50.1 million. The lone poker site in the state, PokerStars, was also down from $4.6 million to $3.2 million. Sports betting handle, on the other hand, went up nearly 15% over the previous month, similar to New Jersey, with the return of PGA Golf seeming to help. Uh, John, what do you make of all this? Are you encouraged by the brick-and-mortar numbers in Pennsylvania, or is it just a temporary spike due to pent-up demand that will quickly fade? Um, Well, you know, having been on hand for all 10 of the New Jersey and Connecticut casino reopenings in the past month. Uh, I can confidently say that the visitors uh, there, they're in the Boulder category. You know, they had no real sense of what to expect, but they wanted in anyway. So and I got no sense that any of those eager visitors won't be back and be back often. They they were ready to go, and they, I think they were probably satisfied with what they got. Uh, I think there's a second tier, though, that they wanted kind of a looky-loo first of the situation. And, and unlike Las Vegas, where if you saw the photos, I, I kind of gassed about those a month ago. Uh, there's no real reason to expect disaster from walking into a Northeast casino property. You don't have people without masks and crowded together and all that crazy stuff. So um, I, I think the numbers uh, for Pennsylvania can keep rising, um, you know, because Pennsylvania is very similar to New Jersey and Connecticut. So I think in the Northeast, actually, um, they're going to be fine because uh, uh, there's a lot more caution, obviously, in this region mm-hmm. and things are going reasonably well. And uh, also the precautions are very strong. So I, I think that they're going to be they're going to be OK. Uh, not going to be like last year, but it's going to be relatively OK. Um, online poker is interesting to me. Um, it doesn't yet have much of, a, if any, of a brick and mortar rival yet. So it's not like the numbers are down because they're back playing poker in a Pennsylvania casino. So I chalk it up to the age 45 plus crowd. They kind of had a temporary migration uh, to poker pending the return of team sports betting and say PGA Tour, and NASCAR and such. And so uh, I think the poker number is probably down for for good maybe yeah you know i'll start on that same point with the online casino leveling off and then the poker coming down uh i'm not sure that i agree on the on the reason i i do agree that it's not really going to spike back up but i i think it has more to do with the weather uh you know Mm. the weather's nicer uh in combination with not everybody is working from home now some people have gone back to work so they're not just sitting around all day looking for something to do online so i i guess uh to test that theory we'll see if any of it picks up back up again over over the winter i i guess i was a little surprised by how much online poker fell um mm. but 
I did write that article a couple weeks ago observing PokerStars PA traffic at various times of the day, and it was clear that a drop in revenue was coming. I just wasn't expecting a 30% drop in, in a single month. But yeah, so uh, you, you may be right. Uh, I th- It might be a combination of, yeah. uh, of both of our observations leading to this significant drop-off. Um, but in terms of the uh, revenue at the land-based casinos, I think one thing we're seeing is that the capacity limits on casinos are not very relevant. You know, you're, you're only permitted, you know, 50% capacity or 25% capacity. It's varying a little from state mm-hmm. to state. Uh, casinos rarely exceed that anyway, except maybe mm-hmm. on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, like I've spent full weeks at the MGM Grand in Vegas, undoubtedly one of the most popular casinos out there, especially during a, a big boxing fight week when MGM is playing host. And other than Friday night and Saturday afternoon and night, the casino floor never feels too crowded. So, so I think that part, the the capacity limits, I think that's a non-issue. Um, you know, a lot of people are staying home and not interested in going to a casino yet. Um, so maybe they'll gradually come back and keep keep this number uh, steady and rising uh, as some of the others drop off. Some of this is the first week or two of excitement to get out to a casino again. But I'm with you in suspecting that. As long as casinos are open in Pennsylvania, they'll keep doing similar per day business to to what they used to do. The question is whether they can stay open, whether Pennsylvania counties can stay in the green uh, as it's currently uh, designated under under Governor Wolf. Uh, Rivers Pittsburgh had to reclose for a few days. Others might uh, expect to have to do the same at some point. But while they're open, these casinos that cater mostly to locals, uh, I I think they're going to keep doing just fine. Yeah, I'd say one other thing. I've seen some reporting that uh, millennials are not happy with uh, you know the new normal because uh, a lot of them are going there not so much to gamble. They want the happy hour, ah. you know, socializing, uh, maybe have a bite to eat, all those different things that other than gambling. So on the one hand, that's too bad because they they're not liking what they see. On the other hand, that's the younger group that is more likely to <laughs> cause some problems. You know, not socially distanced. Maybe the masks are off too often. That kind of thing. So uh, it's unfortunate because that's a good uh, money driver for a casino. Even happy hour drink. It's only four dollars and it costs you you know sixty cents to pour. So it's a nice profit margin. But at the same time, yeah, it's a group that is a little more likely to be uh, kind of more casual in their uh, safety precautions. So I think that's a trade off for the casino. So they're getting an older crowd, which they aren't, normally aren't uh, as thrilled by. They want to get millennials in there. But maybe for the time being, this kind of works out that for, for right now, they need the old boring people to just take care of themselves <laughs> and, and lose money gambling. And we'll bring the millennials back when it's safe again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is this is a bit off topic, has nothing to do with gambling. But I'm, I'm glad to be the age that I am when this is all going down, where I if I was in my late teens, early 20s, oh, really yeah. wanting to go out and hang yeah. out with my friends and go to bars and all that, this would be a lot tougher than it is as, as a guy in my mid 40s who uh, yeah, perfectly content to stay at home, watch TV and do that for months on end. Yeah, I, I think everybody over 40 uh, should have to like uh, sign that as a declaration that <laughs> it's fine for us to talk about millennials or even even younger than millennials and say, you know, gee, they're not being careful, this and that. And if we don't admit that we would be doing the exact same damn thing when we were that age, we're being hypocrites. So, yeah, I, I think it's a good uh, confession by you and I'll, I'll join you in that. <laughs> I, I'd like to believe that I would at least like gather with my friends on somebody's outdoor porch and we might sit a few feet apart, uh, but I can't even promise that that would be the case. 
place, I suppose. So. No, I went to uh, Mardi Gras, New Orleans when I was 22. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm confessing. <laughs> okay. All right, moving on. Uh, the American Gaming Association released new research this week observing shifts in legal and illegal sports betting habits. The AGA found that in states with legal sports betting in 2019, legal online handle rose 12%. Uh, the amount spent betting with illegal bookies decreased 25%, but the amount spent betting online with offshore operators did not decrease. In fact, it went up by 3%. And in states where there is no legal sports betting, betting with offshore books went up 24%. Uh, I find this fascinating that the bookies business has been hurt but the increased awareness of sports betting has helped the offshore books. In a somewhat related story, the U.S. Senate held a hearing on college athletics on Wednesday, and sports betting was part of it, with University of Pittsburgh Athletics Director Heather Like uh, insisting that legal sports betting is a threat to the integrity of college sports, while completely ignoring the reality that illegal sports betting has long put that integrity at greater risk. Uh, John, you observed the Senate hearing, so please share any additional insights. And in terms of the AGA research, any surprises for you in their numbers? Uh, well, yeah, as for Ms. Like, I mean, I, she, she perfectly laid out the scenario about gambling on sports coming to college campuses. That's an ominous turn. I mean, she checked on every reason why it is such a scourge that it would be worth eradicating if only we could. I mean, I, I think the whole message would have resonated perfectly uh, in 1945. Um, <laughs> but in the real world, every alarm bell she rang has had 75 years of periodic ringing, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and this was no doubt the NCAA's handpicked national choice to present the message. Um, she was very pleasant and apparently was a stellar softball player back in her day, a champion of some sort. But the presentation was yeah, very curious. Um, I have yet to hear of an in-game bet she talked about as to whether the first pitch, the second batter, and the third inning would be a fastball or a curveball. But she says that's what we're up against. Right. Or uh, who wins the opening tip? I don't think we're quite that granular, nope. at least in New Jersey. Um and uh, one other thing about the, the hearing I would mention is that Lindsey Graham has been a pretty diehard opponent of all online gambling whatsoever. And coincidentally, so is Sheldon Adelson, the biggest donor to the Republican Party. Um, so that's something that I think people are concerned about because he's the head of the Judiciary Committee. So he has a lot of clout. Um, he, But this is like two hours into a, a, a multi-phase uh, hearing about the NCA, And he barely asked a question of AGA President Bill Miller of um, – you know, well, what are you concerned about that underage, yada, yada kind of. And it, so his heart wasn't really in it. Hmm. And I think the industry probably should be encouraged by that because, uh, like I said, he's got some clout at least for another few months anyway. Um, as for the survey, 52 percent of bettors in 2019, according to that American Gaming Association, they wagered illegally without even knowing it. Um, right. <laughs> the survey. Uh, a key factor in new betting turns out to be reading news reports, by the way, about legal options in the state of those surveyed. So I think we can take credit for all that, Eric. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> um, uh, with, with this Senate hearing, I, I find it interesting how every so often, perhaps at Sheldon Adelson's behest, uh, some arm of the federal government tries to poke its nose. I guess I'm, I'm mixing different body parts there. It can have arms and noses. But anyway, uh, poke its nose into, into sports betting regulation. And nothing happens, and it remains under the purview of the states. This was one of those probably inconsequential hearings, at least in terms of the sports betting angle. And I expect that six months or so from now, something else will pop up, and the federal government will discuss banning some form of sports betting, and, and, and nothing will happen, rinse, repeat. I think, uh, I, th I think that's what's going on here. 
Uh, it's funny you say six months because uh, it was noted by Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey and a former Stanford football player, um, who was pretty adamant about some of the NCA reforms that he wants. Uh, it's actually been six years since they had a hearing. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. At one point, the NCA president even you know pointed out that oh I you know I, I've spoken with Senator Booker and and Booker interrupted him and said. You haven't spoken to me in six years. Okay, so uh, yeah, so this is all uh, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. Yeah, and uh, right. Maybe maybe a six years between hearings, but you do also have the occasional you know wire act uh, challenge or whatever. Any sort of story like that that involves the the federal government trying to get involved. That uh, um, it seems every maybe six months is too short of a time frame, but uh, it it will keep coming around. It seems, but I, I wouldn't expect much to come of it. Um, the offshore sports book stuff fascinates me that, you know, America legalizing sports betting has been nothing but good for them. You know, a, a little bit good in states that allow betting and very good in states that don't. I would guess eventually it'll stop being good for them in states that allow sports betting, that eventually people will learn to distinguish between the legal and the illegal. And as long as they're in states with numerous legal mobile sports books offering them good promos and decent lines the public will veer in that direction um but the offshores will certainly continue doing great business in any state that doesn't have mobile sports betting or that has it but has a monopoly where you, you go and look at the lines and they're minus 133 on both sides or something awful like that those those sort of states are not hurting the offshore sports books business one bit well, it's a shame because uh, the AGA report also notes that, you know, Wall Street Journal, Reuters and Yahoo Sports and quite a few credible news outlets continue to, to promote the offshore sports books. Right. And um, I, I have a longtime friend and co former colleague uh, of some renowned um, a sports writer, and I sort of rib him whenever he mentions one of these offshore books and the lines. And uh even worse, I say, look, now there are legal versions of it. So if you want to have a line on, you know, likelihood of the Giants first round pick or whatever, then just uh, find a legal one. Why? Why pick the illegal one? And you know, I got at least an honest answer, which is that, look, this came to me in my email box. Yep, and I yep. look at it and I, I'm busy. I got a lot going on. You know, I as a escapee of the asylum, I can say that um, these guys have more and more to do and less and less time. And, you know, it, it's it's a time crunch and it's not pretty. And, and, you know, I don't agree with it and, and nothing to brag about, but that's the world the way it is now. So um, the, I give the AGA credit for trying to sort of stamp it out. But the um, kind of the overwhelmed remaining survivors of the traditional media are just saying, look, you know, there's only so much I can do. I got more problems than this. And uh, I, I'm sympathetic to them without, you know, uh, supporting the result. Yeah, no, absolutely. A couple of those offshore sports books have been very good for a very long time about sending attention getting press releases yeah. that list a few interesting odds on offbeat things that maybe aren't even offered in the US. And uh, if you're sort of more of a mainstream sports writer, you don't even realize uh, whose who's line you're using there. Or like you said, you just, I've got this number, I'm going to I'm gonna print it because it's interesting. Um, the, the, the other thing that we haven't really talked about uh, here is, is the bookies aspect. And uh, I have Sam not surprised that the the bookies have been hurt by legal sports betting most of the customers they'll retain are older bettors who aren't comfortable betting on their phones or in some cases maybe don't even have smartphones uh the younger generation why deal with a bookie if you can do it all online legally yeah. unless you want to bet on credit uh that's that's the the one thing the bookies still offer but of course that's a, a dangerous road to go down yeah that's a narrator 
you don't want to bet on credit. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. Ending on a fun note uh, in the news section, and this follows right along with the move to betting legally on your phone instead of with a bookie. Uh, who doesn't like free money? Uh, FanDuel is banking on their customers liking free money, and they're giving away a lot of it, $10 to every customer with either a sportsbook account or a daily fantasy account. FanDuel estimated it'll be giving away $80 million in all, and I can confirm I received my share of that $80 million. The timing is very carefully calculated here, as FanDuel is literally trying to buy customer loyalty just as the team sports return. We have baseball this week and basketball next week. This is an enormous amount of money to give away, and they're actually giving it away, not making you win some almost can't lose bet like these sports books sometimes do. And I have to assume this is the start of a new escalation of the sportsbook wars and DraftKings will respond with something similar, maybe $10.01 in every account. Uh, John, are you dreading the escalation of the FanDuel versus DraftKings commercial wars, similar to what we saw five years ago with DFS? And have you collected your free 10 bucks yet? Uh, well, yeah, I would dread the actual commercial wars that we saw five years ago, but I don't think we're going to get that. Um, yeah, I did see my FanDuel deposit in an email. Uh, now, I, I think you only have about seven to ten days to reawaken right. the account, but you know, otherwise, yeah, I don't see any strings. Now, I did try that DraftKings promotion of what – it looks like I only need one out of about 40 2019 All-Stars yep. did a home run in the opening two days. What for me, it was an outlandish play of $25. I think that can't lose. I'm not sure, but um, I'm going for it. Um, interesting, these companies uh, have the past algorithms to realize, for instance, that there's no way I'm ever, ever going to be a big better, but they're still trying. I'm a little surprised they had, didn't you know, say, you know, this guy, after three years, I mean, we're, we're getting nowhere. Why even give him the, you know, the 10 bucks or the 20 bucks? He's not going to do much with it. Um, but they, they probably have some, some kind of uh, research that shows that one out of every hundred of those, you know, small fish, you know, decides to get in bigger and so it's worth their while. Or I guess I just hit a button. And it's easier to just have everybody get it than figure out who should get it and who shouldn't. Yeah. Um, my, my big takeaway from this is to be concerned about the smaller companies that can't afford to give away $80 million. Um, you know, I, I'd hate to see sports betting in the U.S. end up FanDuel versus DraftKings and, and no other options in your state that they all just kind of dry up. Um, but, you know, the others, a lot of them could very well end up marginalized and, and that wouldn't be great. Um, but Boy, the promos are flying fast and furious. Yeah, yeah. You, you, that $25 that DraftKings is basically giving away. Uh, <laughs> if any 2019 All-Star hits a home run in their opening game, even money up to $25. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did it. $25 isn't quite as far out of my typical range uh, as, it is, as it is yours. I would have bet more if they would have let me. But uh, according to DraftKings, that would normally be a minus 10,000 bet, uh, the odds on that one. So I'll take the even money there. Uh, yeah, as a casual better, this is great. Bring it on. The more bankroll boosters, the better. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's probably a niche, a uh, little little past where we are, where the, somebody doesn't gamble that much, but just enough, and they really focus on these promos, and they, they've got 10 or 12 apps or whatever, and you could make 
easily hundreds of dollars in the course of a year, like guaranteed. And then, um, so then from there, if you say break even for the rest, you know, you, you come out a couple hundred bucks ahead for the year. I mean, there's definitely a, a, a customer level there that's really maximizing the benefit from this and then not really giving the money back uh, on the back end. So, uh, you know, good for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably living proof of that. You look at our uh, our bankroll that we use on the show here. We're pretty close to breaking even. We're a little bit up right now, but you know, we've been right a, a little above and a little below the break even yeah. mark for the last two years now. Yeah. And yet, in real life, uh, you know, I've cashed out a few hundred dollars more than I've put in. What's the difference? Uh, I assume that the only reason I'm a winning sports better is because I've been <laughs> taking advantage of, of the freebies and the bonuses and the odds boosts and all that stuff. Ah, good for you, Eric. Yep. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. It has been 134 days since the last regular season game in a major American team sport was played, but that drought is finally going to end when the Yankees meet the Nationals on Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern time and the Major League Baseball season begins. To discuss the 60-game MLB season ahead of us and the wagering opportunities it presents, we now welcome to the podcast a top fantasy baseball and football analyst for ESPN and Roto Grinders, the creator of The Bat Projection System, Derek Carty. Derek, thanks for joining us on Gamble On. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So this is certainly going to be a baseball season unlike any other. Uh, we have the sprint of a two-month season. We have universal DH. We have diminished home field advantage because there are no fans in the stands. We have a new rule to shorten extra inning games. And we have the likelihood of frequent COVID-related lineup changes. If you had to single out one or two of these factors having the biggest impact on how you're approaching DFS or individual game betting this season, what are the one or two issues at the top of your list and how are they changing your approach? I mean, it's tough to just single out one or two because you just rattled off a list of like five or six that are all completely relevant. Um, I think the universal DH is definitely going to have a big impact. Obviously, facing an actual hitter is a lot easier than facing a pitcher, right. all of National League pitcher, you know, baselines, if you're looking at Jacob DeGrom's stats from last year, they're going to be completely, I don't want to say like wrong, but they're going to be skewed because he was facing tougher competition than Blake Snell was, than Garrett Cole was. And so you really need to adjust for that. It's going to make a, a fairly large difference. We're going to see run scoring, um, you know, go up a little bit in those National League games because of it. And that's something that, that we have to account for, whether we're betting or whether we are you know, playing fantasy. The thing, though, that I'm keeping the closest eye on is how teams manage their starting pitchers. With, with the shorter season, with the expanded rosters, with, with some of the, um, the new rules with how they can use relievers, I really want to see what teams are going to do because over the course of a 162-game season, teams have to manage – the, the fatigue level of their relievers. You know, they can't use their relievers too much or they're going to be burned out. And so starters, you know, traditionally go five, six, seven innings. Over a 60-game season, they might not have to go, you know, that deep into games because the relievers, you don't have to manage them over six months. You manage them over two months. And you have the extra roster spot, um, which is actually an extra five roster spots at the start of the year, if you work down to an extra one roster spot. And you have this whole, you know, 60-player pool, which we don't know exactly, I don't think, yet 
how players can move from the 60-player pool onto the 26 or 30-man roster. Um, but if there's flexibility with that, it would make a lot of sense, I think, for managers, smart managers at least, to use their weaker starters less because once a starter goes a certain amount into a game, once he hits the th- third time through the order, he really gets hit with a pretty severe penalty that, that makes him even worse. And if he's a mediocre starter to begin with, you know, and then he gets hit with that penalty, like why are you playing Michael Waka into the sixth inning when you can go to your bullpen um, and you don't have to worry as much about fatiguing your bullpen? It just, it's the smart thing to do. I want to see how much managers wind up doing this sort of thing. Like it's sort of become a little bit of a trend in recent years. Dave Roberts is a manager in DFS circles who's notorious for pulling his pitchers early and tilting fantasy players. The Rays, you know, started the, the whole opener trend. Like this is a thing that has started to happen. And I'm curious if it really gets kind of, uh, you know, kicked into overdrive this year with, with the uniqueness of the season and all the new rules and everything. You know, Derek, I think a lot of people are are reaching for looking at MLB futures, uh, uh, unusual trends this year for the 60-game season, things to go by. So I'm going to throw a couple of them at you. First one will be here. Um, You you look at teams like the Cardinals and the Yankees, uh, the Dodgers, the Rays on a shoestring budget. um, They're very very well run across the board, okay? Their free agent signings tend to be pretty good. Their farm systems tend to be pretty good. Uh, The managers are good. I mean, the coaches, the the whole system seems to work for them year after year. And um, I'm tempted to think that, you know, all teams are going to have certain minimum standards for COVID-19 protocols, but I'm tempted to think that the best run organizations are also going to be the most careful about making sure that, you know, the bullpen coach is absolutely on top of those players, making sure they're not getting too close together and that kind of thing. And some of the poorly run teams may be, you know, they, they mean to do well, but they can't get anything right. So they're not gonna get this right either. Um, so might be a cockamamie theory, but does that make it tempting to bet over on any of the best run teams just because they're less likely to have an outbreak where, you know, eight, 10 guys are out for two weeks and then you're basically got a triple A team going to the field. Yeah. It's an interesting theory. It's one I haven't heard before, but I can see reasons why it's viable and I can see reasons why it wouldn't be. I mean, obviously I don't want to get into like politics or anything, but like we've seen how certain States that are run by people that are a little more science-based um, tend to do things a little bit differently than, than ones that, that are not. Um, and there are certainly certain major league baseball teams that are more science-based or more advanced with things um, that they could be you know, putting more emphasis on it. But then at the end of the day, really, it comes down to the players. Because even if in the ballpark, the protocols are all you know, so much better, say, for the Yankees than for the Royals or whoever, um, you know, if, if there's players on the team that, that aren't taking it seriously and they're going out after the games and, you know, going to bars or clubs or whatever, and they bring it back to the team, I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of is going to fall a lot on the players' shoulders, I think, more than the team's. All right. So John asked you about some of some of those reliable favored teams, uh, some of some of the chalk type of teams. I'm going to ask you about some of the ones uh, sort of in the middling category. You know, there's a, there's a case to be made that in a 60 game season, the underdogs are more live than ever. And we have a good chance of seeing some mediocre teams reach the postseason. So, Derek, if you had to bet on a team that's 20, 20 to one or higher to, to win the World Series, which team or, or teams uh, stands out to you as, as a good long shot bet going into the season? Yeah, I, I totally agree that, that over a shorter season, I think the chances of seeing a, a weaker team make it there are a lot stronger. You know, if we were to play, you know, a season out over a million games, 
the best team would basically always win because the sample is so big and the best team's always going to win. But the smaller you make it, you know, the lesser teams have more of a shot. Um, so I think you can really make a case for a lot of them. But the one that I would pick that I like the most would be the Cleveland Indians. I have um, – I mean, the Indians for years were, were the best team in the AL Central. They were the favorite every year. They'd win every year. Now the Twins have gotten really good. And it almost seems like perception has kind of uh, exacerbated it too much. Like the Twins, I think, a lot of people consider as like this heavy, heavy favorite, like the clear best team in the AL Central. And I'm not sure that they're that big of a favorite. My projection system, the bat, has the Indians, you know, finishing with only one fewer win than, than the Twins do. And over a 60-game season, you know, that's not that many. It wouldn't be out of, you know, out of the ordinary to see, you know, the Indians win the division, you know, given that that talent level is potentially a lot smaller than people think. Um, and even if they don't, you know, they'd have a shot at a wild card. So um, I think the Indians still have a good amount of talent. And I think at 25-1, to 1, I think their odds are pretty good. Okay. And, and another team that's in that 25 to one ish kind of range. I'm just curious for your take on, on the reds. Cause they seem like the big bandwagon sleeper pick that I'm reading everywhere, except now it's at the point where maybe they aren't such a sleeper anymore. Cause so many people are naming them, but do you see there, there being value there or are people maybe overrating the reds chances a little? So it almost seems to me kind of like what you said, where people are overrating their chances a little bit. Like I like the Reds. I think if I could get them at like 35 to one, 40 to one, I'd be a lot more interested than at, at 25 to one you said they're at right now. Um, I see that division being very close. I see the top four teams in that division all finishing. I haven't projected finishing within like one win of each other or mm. two wins of each other or something like that. Um, so I don't hate the Reds at that price, but I do think, it's division with a lot more competition. You know, there's four legitimate teams that could win that. Whereas the Indians at the same price, it's really basically the twins or the Indians. Maybe you can make a case for the white Sox, but talent wise, they are a little bit below the other two. Right. All right, Derek, I'll throw another kind of unconventional thinking uh, out there. You know, we saw David Price opt out pretty quickly and then Buster Posey as well and a handful of other uh, star players. They've got more money than they know what to do with and, uh, you know, it just didn't seem worth it for them to, to bother with this. But most competitors kind of got to most of these, you know, overpriced, uh, highly paid stars on teams across the spectrum. But it seems to me that uh, if you're on a bad team like the Marlins or uh, the the Pirates or the Royals, the, the Mariners, and so on, um, your team is probably going to be lousy. And at midseason, if you're pretty much out of it, there's not much reason for you to keep playing given the safety concerns. And frankly, your owner is going to be thrilled if you opt out. So you're only going to make him happy. And if you're a veteran player on a young team, you've got all the clout in the world. You don't have to worry about your teammates sniping at you. They, they realize, Hey, in 10 years, God forbid something similar comes back. Uh, I would do the same thing. So it seemed to me that if you got a bad team with some overpriced star players, they're liable to opt out in the second half of the season. And then you got a bad team with AAA players instead of those overpriced guys who at least can play a little bit. Um, so under on some of the worst teams, uh, how crazy is that uh, thought process? I, I think it's viable. This is another one that I hadn't really considered before, but I think it's something that we could definitely see. So uh, you guys sent me this ahead of time. So I had to do a time to do a little bit of preparation to like look into this. So I looked at the 10 worst teams, according to the bat, the, the teams that the bat thinks are the 10 worst. And I looked at their, uh, the weighted average of their, their age. So like who the oldest teams are. And then I went through individually. I said, okay, of the oldest teams, which ones have, you know, these really old guys that are contributing a lot to their, um, you know, to their win totals um, and who could opt out. So 
the oldest team overall is the Giants. And they are the second worst team, according to the bat. Mm-hmm. They have, obviously, Buster Posey has already opted out. They have Evan Longoria. They have Hunter Pence. They have Johnny Cueto. They have Jeff Smarger. They have Brandon Crawford. This is a team that if you're going to try to bet the under on, wow. yeah. I don't know what their line is right now, but I think it's probably too high to begin with. So you can definitely bet the under on the Giants. Um, the Rangers are the second oldest team, and they have some guys um, you know, that, are, that are older, and I think they're you know, a bottom 10 team. Elvis Andrus, Sinshu Chu, Todd Frazier, Corey Kluber, Lance Lynn, Mike Miner, Kyle Gibson, all guys that are over 30 years old, all guys that have made a decent amount of money so far in their career. Um, so I think the Rangers are one that you could definitely make the case for. And then the Rockies, they're not um, necessarily one of the oldest of those 10 teams. They're only the eighth oldest, um, or I guess like the third youngest, but they're kind of disproportionately old, like Nolan Arenado, Charlie Blackman, Daniel Murphy, three of their best hitters are, are all old and could easily opt out. And, you know, that would take a, a pretty significant hit on them. So this might not be so crazy after all. I'm, I'm feeling even better about it now that I hear you give the numbers there. Yeah, John. John might just be onto something, and uh, and 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 with his, uh, you know, he's, he thinks outside the box clearly based on your reactions, but uh, maybe maybe not in a crazy way. No, not at all. I mean, I think. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see any of this kind of stuff happen. Hmm. Well, so a couple of times uh, during some of your answers there, you you referenced the bat. So I, I want to end on that uh, because you know it's it's nearly impossible to succeed long term in baseball betting or DFS baseball without a projection system and a statistical model. Um, so for listeners who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the bat is and, and what distinguishes it from other projection systems? Yeah. So, so the bat is my projection system. Um, it's been around at Roto Grinders for, for four years. It's at EV analytics for sports betting stuff for the last couple of years. Um, it's at Fangraphs for season long fantasy. Um, basically it is a, uh, it's a sabermetric model. It uses a lot of the same methodology that is being used in major league front offices. I've worked with a lot of guys who now work with major league teams. I've learned a lot of really cool things um, over the years. I guess one thing that that's, you know, differentiates it is the methodology. I do think it is better than, you know, pretty much anything else that I've seen out there, especially in the, you know, in, in this field. And it has, it accounts for so many things. Like there's so many things that affect what happens on a baseball field. It's not just the hitter and the pitcher. It's the umpire. It's the catcher's pitch framing. It's, you know, the defensive alignment relative to where hitters hit the ball. You know, a pole hitter who hits the ball on the ground a lot, you know, who's right-handed, you know, the third baseman and the shortstop are going to matter a lot more than, than the right fielder would. So it accounts for, for all that type of stuff. Uh, this year I baked in, all kinds of stack cast stuff, barrels, sprint speed, exit velocity, launch angles, weather factors are in there, minor league data is in there. Just basically everything you could think of that should matter, I've tried to put in there, and uh, the results have been, have been pretty good over the past few years. All right, excellent. Well, great stuff. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Derek. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're both uh, excited for baseball, and I, I know you're excited for baseball, so uh, good luck and enjoy the season. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We 
we came back to Earth a little bit last week as John hit a bump in the road on his otherwise mostly hot golf betting uh, with Brooks Kepka apparently not treating the memorial like a major <laughs> and costing us $120. That's the only bet that got graded last week, so we slipped to being up by $541 with $675 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $9,866 available to bet this week. And we might be inching back toward that zone where we're each placing two bets per podcast. But for now, let's stick with one bet. And you're up first, John. Uh, well, I'll call the audible then. I want to try two bets this week. And the okay. uh, second one's going to be due to that Derek Cardi interview we just had. Um, hmm. Now, one of the last lame PGA Tour events of the year is up. It's the 3M Open in Minneapolis, which is as exciting as the name. Um, <laughs> give me boring, aging British veteran Paul Casey at 100 to win, 110 for a top 20. Uh, he doesn't inspire me enough to shoot higher with a top five or, or win or anything. Uh, and my winning gambit play, Eric Van Royen, he already had started by the time this podcast airs, so we'll pass on him. All right, so I guess you so you have a, a, a second bet uh, uh, coming up then after I place uh, my bet, and I should note I'll be placing my bets plural. Uh, I too <laughs> am deviating from what I just said uh, a minute ago. I guess I was lying because I'm placing two bets this week. But for me, it's all in one conversation. They're they're related, and then we can come back uh, to your to your audible. Um, I wanted to bet on the Phillies opener. That's what I was looking to do, but. I don't love the prices. I don't see player props yet as of Thursday morning. So uh, instead, I was looking for other games to bet, and I found two. First, rarely is a team legitimately a huge underdog in a single baseball game. Uh, So the Orioles, as bad as they are, at plus 200 against the Red Sox, who figure not to be all that good this season either, that feels to me like a solid underdog bet. Uh, and then going against that theory that nobody is ever really a two-to-one underdog or favorite in an MLB game, I love the Cardinals behind Jack Flaherty at minus 200 against the Pirates. That's a game where I'd say the Cards win about 75 or 80% of the time with that particular pitching matchup. Uh, so here's what I'm going to do. $50 to win 100 on the Orioles to open with an upset win in Boston and $100 to win 50 on the Cards opening with a win against the Pirates. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Uh, yeah, we'll stick with baseball. Um, again, as uh, Derek and I talked about, um, I'm going with Giants under 25 and a half. Now, it's 165 to win 100 on DraftKings. Um, surely if you shop around, you can do better. I didn't have time to do that. But um, <laughs> And if Major League Baseball decides later today to expand the playoffs, the, it's kind of weird they're still talking about it. It would get more complicated. But uh, even so, uh, you know, as we talked about, the Giants have more overpriced veterans with incentives skip the last few weeks of a pointless campaign than any team. A lot of them have a ring or two or three. So, I mean, if the, if they get off to a slow start, why bother finishing the season? I mean, they're, they're the, they're the, uh, you know, alpha males in the clubhouse. No one, no, no upstart rookie is going to be yelling at them for quitting and um, they can just leave. The team's not going to mind. They save some money on salary. So, um, so my theory and Derek's research uh, that equals that bonus bet. Yeah, that's that's a good bet. Steep price, but uh, but yeah. uh, probably a, a good bet. So you know, I saw the headline that uh, Major League Baseball considering expanding playoffs. Yeah. I didn't click on it. I assumed it was for talking about down the road next year or something like that. You're saying oh. that they're still they're yeah. talking about it for this current season. Yeah, they have to do it before game time tonight. Um, <laughs> this is this is amazing. Like here we are on the uh, we're, we're within hours of the start of the Major League Baseball season yeah. and. Uh, a, we don't. They they haven't decided how many teams get into the playoffs. That that astounds me. And B, 
one of the 30 teams in the league doesn't have a home stadium yet. Uh, uh, unbelievable how uh, uh, how patchwork this all is as they try to get and, it off and the And the legal sports books now have taken bets uh, not only on over-under and who's going to win the division and all that, but on what does the team make the playoffs. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, that, that was based on 10 teams. Right. You know, I mean, uh, Major League Baseball and really all the uh, major sports, they're going to have to get used to the idea of, you know, you guys, not only is there legal sports betting around the country and half the population can do it legally, um, but uh, you got to pay attention. You can't just do this anymore. I mean, and, and your partner's in it in, in, to a great extent. Right. It's like right. barely tolerating it. You can't make a decision about how many teams are in a playoff at the last moment. It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, I would have to assume if they change the number to something other other than five teams per uh, per league making the playoffs that all will won't make playoffs bets are going to end up re- refunded. Uh, that's there's yeah. just no other way to handle it. Exactly. All right. Well, that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Derek Carty. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. So I'm trying to get my head around it still. You don't love the player. You don't love the team. You love the price. You bet the price. You know, as I wrap up a Cinderella season of NFL and PGA Tour picks, I'm still in that evolutionary process of trying to think more like a legitimate sports better. So I typed up my pick for the golf last week, even printed it out in my typical dinosaur fashion. But for the first time in Gamble on History, the morning we did the uh, broadcast, I took my pick off the board. And that pick was John Rahm, 100 to win, 110 (laughs) for top 20, and 20 to win the event for 400. So, uh, yeah, he won easily, and yes, this would have backed my actual Morikawa pick the week before. Um, So why did I change, though? Um, I saw Kep get 100 to win, 163 for top 20, and that was the price to love best. And that's how a pro does it. You take the best price. And I still think that. So... I wasn't thrilled uh, half, to find out halfway through the event that uh, Brooks said, oh, I had an MRI on my LE knee a few days earlier. You know, parentheses, hashtag integrity fees, close parentheses. Right. <laughs> but I handled the unfortunate turn of events fairly well. You know, I think back, uh, I interviewed poker pro Jamie Kerstetter about six or seven years ago, and we talked quite a bit about grinding, uh, she and a couple other pros, um, you know, which is them spending 10, 11 hours a day. That's like a real job, making money playing poker. It's hard for people to picture, but the grinding is a really good description because it's not fun. Um, But, you know, not everybody's job is fun, and uh, they do make money at it. Um, So, you know, I asked her about what's the hardest part of that job, and there are several things, but I felt like she took on kind of a zen mindset as she explained that occasionally she'll box an amateur player into a corner, almost no way out, entering the final card. Of course, occasionally that card's going to come in. Mm -hmm. And she said that you just have to focus on what you did right and not what the end result was. So... I'm starting to realize that is my goal as I go on this journey. So, you know, where do I stand in this process? Um, I think I'll quote a poet and fellow Jersey native in the pride of Sayreville, John Bon Jovi, and say, I wouldn't sing it, though. Uh, I think I'm halfway there. <laughs> and with that, until next time, listen to Phil Helmuth, everybody, and gamble on. <laughs>